Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Thousands of people who don't normally get involved came out for last year's Women's March. Saturday's march is aimed at bringing power to the polls. I'll discuss how the movements evolved with the head of field operations and strategy for the Women's March. And on Global Notes, our look at international music, cuts from an African mixtape from the early 80s. Don't forget you can join the conversation on Twitter at WBEZ Worldview. Last year's Women's March laid claim to being the largest single-day protest in American history. This year, the epicenter of the march moves to Las Vegas. The theme of the march is power to the polls. Mrinalini Chakrabadi is the head of field operations and strategy for the Women's March. She's also founder and president of the Women's March Illinois. Thanks for joining us, Mrinalini. It's my pleasure to be with all of you today. Thank you. Uh, Can you tell us a little about yourself? I was reading on the uh, website of the Women's March that you fought for the rights of sex workers and human trafficking victims as a teenager. Yes. So that is kind of how I, um, you know, entered the world of social justice uh, uh, movement building and, you know, training as an organizer. Um, I started um, in the red light district of Kolkata, which um, anybody who has a little bit of background on the human trafficking industry, South Asia has a lot of really devastating stories and and really um, important hubs where it comes to um, the sex trade. And we have a particularly, you know, uh, difficult um, problem in India in a couple of pockets. So when I was 15, I started um, volunteering with this um, amazing nonprofit uh, that organized specifically in the red light district in my hometown of Kolkata, India. Um, and, you know, our mission was to not only lend like, unconditional support to sex workers as, you know, fighting for their basic rights to access um, you know, you know the the regular services that our government should, um, you know, s- get, supply to all uh, citizens, but also to you know um, mentor their children. Um, I focused more on mentoring the children of sex workers and uh, making sure that you know uh, they had the education and the access to opportunities that they needed in order to. Um, you know, possibly, you know, get out of this right. horrifying cycle of abuse. That's where I got my start. Yeah, that's an amazing story. And you came here to go to undergraduate school at Knox College in Illinois. Yep, that's right. About two and a half hours west of here in Chicago, in the middle of cornfields, coming from a city of 10 million. And you're um, now getting a doctoral degree at the University of Illinois in anthropology. It sounds like you put a little bit of that on hold to help organize the Women's March. I am getting my Ph.D. in anthropology at uh, University of Illinois. Um, 
I did take a sabbatical for almost a year, um, and it's possible that I might have to walk away from the doctoral uh, career for a little bit because, you know, this work is too urgent and too um, immediate at the moment, and I can't juggle both. How did you get involved in this? And it, it sounds like it took over your life. Yes. So like I said, I've been organizing with immigrant communities, with, um, you know, social and racial justice work, um, you know, throughout my uh, adult life uh, in this country as well. Um, You know, 2016, November 8th, you know, the day that I feel like a lot of us will never forget, um, you know, I we were all sort of like transfixed. And, you know, in that particular moment when we knew where the election, you know, what the results would be, I knew immediately that I had to do something um, and, and more than I have done before. And more than anything, what was clear to me that um, what needs to happen is we can't spiral down into a wave of apathy and sort of like resignation, that there needs to be a counter movement, you know, to the hate and the bigotry and the xenophobia that we had seen. Um, so like many other women across the nation, I rose up when I saw that there was a, just a like in the first few hours of that Facebook um, event being created, I reached out to the co-founder, Bob Bland, and um, and I asked her what she needed. And, you know, and I started organizing the nation to head to Washington, D.C. So I started on day one um, working directly with the national team. Can you give us some idea of what that has been like? Because there's been all sorts of criticism of the Women's March as, uh, you know, too neoliberal, too white, um, too soft uh, and and, um, all sorts of misnaming issues and arguments over naming uh, what went down there in those early days? It's interesting that you mention those particular um, sort of words that have been associated with us. I mean, yes, there was a naming issue. You know, like, let's be clear, uh, this march was created in a hurry by a woman who had never organized something like this before. And, uh, you know, the name was a problem. I was one of the first people to point out that the name was a problem. We can't be, you know, uh, doing something this powerful and this necessary while we're co-opting um, another movement, right? It, this but, was like a million know, women's march originally. or uh-huh. That's right. Um, but then, you know, like for folks who have actually followed the story, I mean, it all happened so fast, so I can appreciate why a lot of people, you know, their first impression of how the movement was starting was their last. Um One of our first, very first things we did was bring in a really strong leadership team. And, you know, you only have to go to our March committee to see just the diversity of folks who organize this movement, Um, whether it was bringing on Carmen, Tamika, Linda, um, and, you know, like having, um, making sure that that our movement was truly intersectional, not only in our unity principles, but in every aspect of our organizing. So yes, like every movement that starts from a grassroots groundswell, we definitely had challenges, but we were very, um, you know, cognizant of them and worked on them to make sure that those were addressed. Um, And, you know, we can look at you know, how the Washington, D.C. march was or the 600 other marches across the country. I think a lot of majority of those marches were a testament to the uh, principles that we are organizing around. Um, yeah. 
I'm talking with Murnalini Chakrabadi. She's head of field operations and strategy for the Women's March. She's also founder and president of Women's March Illinois. And we're talking about the Women's March, which is coming up. Um, you know, when you made this um, strong move towards more inclusiveness and diversity in uh, the Women's March, did was there a, a pushback in the other direction? I noticed that there was an or, uh, there was a March on organization that seems more aimed at red states and uh, strategies of uh, getting the vote out in red states and has kind of separated itself off and using different techniques. Uh, what, what, how, what would your interpretation of that be? Yeah. So, I mean, I can't really speak to what other, you know, like particular organizations are doing, but it's very interesting to me, um, you know, that a year after the march, we see, you know, there are a great many people who have been inspired to start organizing because of the Women's March, you know, and, you know, it gives me great hope. But at the same time, we can't assume that all of these people will necessarily uphold our intentional intersectional approach and principles. And as far as, you know, that, um, you know, that line of thinking that somehow intersectional values and principles do not resonate in red states, I find that very problematic. You know, we have chapters and organizers that are active from Georgia, South Carolina, New Mexico, and Texas to the heartland in Minnesota, Iowa, Indiana, Ohio. And we have fierce organizers, you know, organizing their communities based on the unity principles that we set out, which is a comprehensive platform. So for folks to say that those tactics and those values and that worldview, you know, that vision that we have for, you know, how, you know, um, truly inclusive this world can be, our society can be, that that's not resonating with red state voters, I think they're out of touch. And that's also dangerous because it's not setting a high enough standard for what our movement can be. You know, um, let's work for a truly revolutionary vision and, you know, and see where we go. Why should we settle for anything less? Yeah. Is is there something to um, the idea that something like gun control, which is uh, a big point of the Las Vegas uh, location of the Women's mm-hmm. Marches here. And um, a lot of people in red states are pro-guns, and uh, they've just got a different set of issues that they respond to, and, and this approach is not going to get there. Yes, and, uh, you know, sensible gun laws, you know, not, you know, I, I always like to phrase it that way because, um, you know, words matter and the way that we phrase issues is everything. Um, You know, I think one of our biggest tasks as leaders and, you know, movement builders is to, you know, frame and work on issues in a way that it does make sense to people, that that people can relate to. Um, I don't think any American, when they are confronted with the facts of, you know, the amount of gun violence that we have in this country, that they don't, that they won't realize that there is an epidemic, you know, of, of uh, you know, deaths that are caused by gun violence. It really is up to us in how we shape those issues, how we build strong coalitions to make sure that these issues are brought to the forefront, you know, and that's sort of the work that we've been doing is, you know, when we um, organized a really, um, you know, amazing um, action from 
marching from the NRA headquarters in Fairfax, Virginia last year to the Department of Justice, you know, specifically targeting uh, the NRA because of the hateful rhetoric that they um, continue to use against um, people who are exercising their First Amendment rights to protest. You know, this is an issue that should matter to all Americans, um, you know, but it's up to us to lead on these issues and make sure that they resonate. You know, it's not enough to just say that, well, you know, people don't really, you know, this is not their problem. I mean, you know, guns uh, from where I stand and having seen a lot of violence in my life, um, you know, when we saw the mass shooting in Las Vegas last year, you know, that gun was not discriminating, you know, whether somebody was coming from a red state or not. Are there some um, other issues that the Women's March worked through? It seems like uh, it was almost like a, a systematic lesson in issues as the Women's March organizers kind of went from one to another over the course of the last year. Can you describe other issues that uh, were hit upon? So, right. The the way that uh, I like to think about it, you know, um, we – when you talk about intersectionality, it has to permeate every aspect of work you do. You know, there's a quote by Audre Lorde um, that really, um, you know, that has been at the center of my work, um, as well as like our work at the Women's Marches. There is no such thing as a single issue uh, movement because we don't lead single issue lives. Right. And that's what we have tried to do that, you know, we can't talk about, you know, uh, healthcare as a human right without talking about, you know, economic justice. We can't talk about racial justice without also, again, talking about economic justice. These issues are so intimately um, intertwined and these, these like systemic injustices are so interconnected to each other that we have to tackle them from all different um, angles. Um, that's the reason that, you know, we mobilized in large numbers last year to protect the ACA. We've mobilized in large numbers and continue to do so, even right now when we're two and a half days away from trying to get the DREAM Act passed. You know, we're, we've been mobilizing for our undocumented siblings across the country. Um, you know, all of these issues are important and they're very much a part of our unity principles. You know, um, th- that document really sh- sort of shares with the world what we think that's w- that justice um, you know, a more just world looks like. Um, and, you know, that's why you've probably seen us mobilizing on multiple different issues, because one other thing that's clear to us is that this administration is hell-bent on, you know, targeting the most vulnerable and marginalized communities. And we have, it's our job to make sure that we center the voices of those communities in our work. Um, Renalini, do you feel a little targeted yourself? You're here on temporary status. You are uh, almost everybody I know who is here uh, legally and is not a citizen feels vulnerable. Um, I guess I would be remiss to say that it's not on my mind. Uh, you know, it is. You know, I have been working on um, gaining permanent status in this country, but see, that's what sort of gives me a very real perspective into, you know, uh, the not only the immigration system, but just like how different like bureaucratic processes work. Right. Um, the patience and the diligence that you have to have in order to uh, 
you know, gain status in this country, a lot of people don't realize that, just how much work goes into that. But at the same time, while that's something that, you know, me and my family, we, uh, me and my husband, I should say, that we're working on, um, I have never allowed fear to direct uh, what I do and how I do it. Um, if I was afraid, I probably wouldn't be putting myself in the spotlight the way that I have. Um, so I just leave it up to, you know, like we're doing the work that needs to be done in terms of our um, permanent residency. But, you know, I have to keep doing, you know, my um, social justice work as well. I can't let it stop me. Um, and then we'll see what happens. I'm talking with Mernalini Chakrabadi. She's the head of field operations and strategy for the Women's March. She's also founder and president of Women's March Illinois. We'll be back with more after the break. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. We're talking about the Women's March. Last year's march was the single largest day protest in American history. The march is going to Las Vegas this year, and the theme of the march is power to the polls. And I'm talking with Bernalini Chakrabadi. She's the head of field operations and strategy for the Women's March. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the theme, uh, power to the polls. And um, it's been interesting to read a lot about uh, some of the polling that's going on. And obviously, um, a lot of uh, white women voted for Donald Trump uh, in the last election. Uh, And it almost seems like there's, uh, you would think that this would be, I don't know, a, a hard place to get movement in the polls, I guess. But it seems from some of the data I was reading, there was an interesting article in The Atlantic recently um, that there's a lot of movement on uh, where women are at in, and then their polls or numbers are changing. Um, can you talk about the strategy here? There's a lot to this. I mean, that's a really, really, um, you know, like a question that demands, you know, a lot of analysis. Um, but the way that we look at it is, you know, last year we created history. We mobilized more people that have ever uh, be mobilized in a single day protest, right? And over the past year, we have created a powerful movement that has ignited thousands of activists and new leaders across this nation and across the globe, actually. But we have to take our movement to the next stage, right? And we have to channel that energy and activism into tangible strategies and concrete wins. Like 2018 is 
of paramount significance when it comes to, you know, at least beginning the journey to taking our country back, right? And it's our intent to channel this energy into local electoral organizing and also supporting the tremendous work that is already being done on the ground, not only in Women's March chapters across the nation, but also by several progressive organizations that have already been doing electoral work. So our goal is to support and amplify and add to that work and, um, you know, and, and create a sort of, uh, you know, strategy over the next 10 months to lead to some concrete wins in the midterms. We are focusing on Senate, uh, key Senate races and um, U.S. congressional races. We're also focusing in some really interesting and, um, you know, significant um, state races, whether there are governorships or whether they are a few probable like state level races as well. And you know, it, it made sense for us to uh, be in Las Vegas, you know, with Nevada being a, a really important battleground state in 2018 um, with a Senate election, um, with, a, with a competitive Senate race, um, as well as, you know, it, it also speaks to a number of issues that we are, you know, specifically that we stand for, that we are fighting for. So that's where we're starting. And, um then we're going to be announcing a, uh, you know, our plans for the next few months in a sort of a tour that we hope to do around the country, focusing on key races. And um, as for the question you asked, I mean, you know, we just have to, you know, follow the leadership of black women because again and again and again, they have delivered multiple elections for us and they have um, voted in uh you know you know uh, in line with what our movement stands for so i mean i have always followed the leadership of black women and i do think that they are going to be going to be leading us to victory in multiple arenas not just this year but beyond uh what do you say to people like uh cornell west who still expresses uh some frustration with uh, the Women's March, he wrote in The Guardian the other day that um, he preferred the March 8th March, which was a uh, mobilization uh, as a sign of hope. And he talked about the neoliberal hegemony of the Women's March of January 2017, uh, the feminist label. He doesn't like fashionable corporate feminism, boss feminism, top-down feminism of the corporate media. Um, how do you react to people who are, are – um, you know, still coming at it from that perspective. Mm. Uh, yeah, that's difficult. I mean, first and foremost, like Cornel West is, uh, you know, somebody that I personally look up to as one of the most inspirational and brilliant thinkers of our time. And, um, you know, it's it's interesting because the Women's March is not just, you know, w however we look at it, it's not just a movement that is that belongs to just any one of us. Right. Like we are a small team of organizers who are, you know, organizing um, at the national level with our local chapters. But I think there is something to be said for the larger movement. And I mean, I can't really speak to his particular analysis, but. What I hear in that is also sort of a criticism uh, that is valid in terms of how past feminist movements, and we don't know what the arc of this current wave is going to be, but past feminist movements have sort of left uh, – 
you know, women of color especially behind in in terms of, you know, building radically inclusive uh, leadership, radically inclusive visions for what our world, you know, uh, can be. And, um, you know, I think it's fair that he is, you know, um, critical and as well as like skeptical about what this particular movement can and will accomplish. Um, but see, like that's our goal every single day, right? To prove uh, that we can, you know, uh, learn from mistakes of past revolution, past movements and, and build a better one. Uh, over the course of the last year, we've seen the Me Too movement pop up and really change conversations about uh, about gender and and all sorts of things. How does that factor into what's happened with the women's march and uh, feminism these days? Um, I mean, I I don't know, like whether uh, you know, like what's what that even means. I mean, Me Too is a campaign that, uh, you know, I mean, not only do we have a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of folks who are architects of, um, you know, that movement are very much, you know, working with us in multiple different capacities. But I think what we saw this year was sort of women just like standing up and saying that, you know, enough is enough. Uh, We have lived with these different kinds of like systemic oppressions every single day and we have worked and succeeded despite it but you know it was sort of a real moment of reckoning in our in our nation and in the sort of the culture that permeates our society that you know like somehow we have to make do with how things are and work around them and this is sort of us taking that you know that um, oppression head on, that no, we don't have to work around them. Um, I think we, you know, as, as we have seen, the the ripples that started with that movement have has permeated almost every industry, whether it's entertainment to politics, um, to, you know, like to local government. Um, it's and I think it'll continue making waves. And this is also a moment for us to, you know, truly uh, think about, you know, is it you know, when we talk about progressive, uh, you know, like candidates representing us in government, we have this is a moment for us to realize that what do we mean when we say that? Like, is it acceptable for, you know, somebody to have really progressive stances and then we come to know that they have sexually harassed and assaulted folks? And um, at least from where I stand, that's non-negotiable. You know, um, that's just uh, and, and those are the decisions that we have to make um you know, as we move forward, that, you know, where are we willing to make um, compromises and where aren't we? And I think the Move Me Too movement just highlights that this is not a negotiable um, stance for us. I'm talking with Murnalini Chakrabadi. She's head of field operations and strategy for the Women's March. Uh, what's been the best thing about doing this? I imagine there's a lot of really uh, hard thing organizing buses and porta potties and permits and uh, and different kind of uh, educational things. But uh, I mean, I imagine there are people to people things that are pretty great. 
Absolutely. So um, first of all, you mentioned some of my favorite parts of organizing, like <laughs> stuff that people think are really boring, like porta potties are important. You know, they're very important. Um, and I organized the possibly in recent times, the largest bus mobilization that this nation has seen for D.C. mobilizing over 2,500 buses last year. So I feel like, you know, those are really important aspects to organizing. But for me personally, you know, you know, some of the challenges have actually been some of the most rewarding things. Um, it's pretty amazing to hear, you know, every day, especially when I'm organizing in my city of Chicago, I meet women and men every single day who tell me that, you know, they had never really been politically engaged and active before the Women's March. And this was sort of their entryway to activism and to being a more engaged citizen. And that is, I don't think I'll ever get used to hearing that because it just feels like, you know, even if we do nothing, that's, you know, that galvanizing effect that um, we had on this nation, that's, you know, that's good enough in many ways, you know. And then, you know, in terms of our internal work, I mean, you know, movement work is tough. And, you know, because a lot of times as we are confronting a lot of uh, really hard realities out in the world, we're also confronting a lot of our own, uh, you know, issues and struggles, whether they be our own biases, whether they be our own shortcomings as organizers, as movement builders. So it's been a lot of hard work. But through confronting them, you know, I have also found a family with my, uh, you know, with the other uh, folks who are leading this movement with me. Um, and that sense of family, I feel like we'll, I'll be looking back on this years from now and thinking about like how together we, you know, stood up in this really, really dark time. Uh, and, you know, I just want to be able to tell myself later on, like 40 years from now, that when, you know, we had literal like fascists, uh, you know, in, in government that I didn't stay quiet. And, you know, I was fighting right alongside my sisters and brothers in the movement. So that gives me a great sense of peace. Is there something you're really looking forward to Saturday of particular highlights for you? Oh, my gosh. I'm looking forward to, number one, seeing the over 300 anniversary events that we have, uh, you know, that folks have registered on our website. So we will be, you know, I can't wait to see the live stream from those events. Um, and all of those will be on womensmarch.com. There will be a global live stream happening with events from all around the world like like we had last year. But I'm also particularly really pumped up for Las Vegas, which is where I'm going to be. Um, we have really inspirational speakers there from Reverend William Barber to um, to Nina Turner to uh, Cecil Richards from Planned Parenthood. And, you know, this will be a kickoff for our Power to the Polls campaign that we're going to focus hard on for the rest of the year. Um, so I'm really, really excited to be in Nevada with all of our organizers there and, um, you know, kick off a great start to a fantastic year. Mernalini Chakrabadi is head of field operations and strategy for the Women's March. She's also founder and president of Women's March Illinois. Thanks a lot for talking with me about Women's March and every single women's issue I could think of before we have in the last half hour. Thank you. Thank you so much.
Coming up after the break, we'll have Global Notes, our look at international music, and we'll hear cuts from an African mixtape from the early 80s. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you're listening to Worldview from WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald, and it's time for Global Notes, our look at international music. And that lovely music is from an African mixtape that was circulating in Philadelphia in the early 80s. And we're going to hear about it now with my colleague Daniel Musisi, who engineers for us here at WBEZ. He curates our music on Worldview these days, and he is also known in the DJ world as Moose. Hey, nice how's to it going? On the radio. <laughs> Um, this is a family project, this mixtape. It is. Um, this mixtape has been something I've heard since I can remember. Um, my mom used to play it throughout the house, um, especially at, during special times, like when we were having company over or um, when she's cleaning the house, getting ready for company, definitely during like fun celebratory times. And um, we've got a cut of your mom talking about how she got the t- how she got this mixtape. Yes, we do. So basically, um, introduce she, your mother to us. Where, where where was she from? What was she doing? My mother is Damali Musisi. She came to this country in 1975, the year I was born. She came from Uganda, from Kampala, and you know just outside of Kampala in Kaboa. And she was born and raised there left Uganda, went to Switzerland, was there for a short time, and then hit Philly. And um, I was born in Philadelphia. She, um, at some point early on in her time in Philadelphia, made some African friends. So when I came to the United States, I found some Ugandans. I mean, Africans, really, because all Africans used to get together all the time. And, I mean, we always shared, we share all African music with each other, within the African community, yeah. And uh, someone gave us that tape. I mean, lent it to me, and then I kept it. (laughs) That is what happened with cassette tape mixtapes. You've got to move them around, and suddenly they're somewhere else. And I think this was kind of before (laughs) people were dubbing, had the dual cassette tapes, you know, so... It was harder to dub the tape. You just kind of, if you got it, you held on to it if you could, I guess. <laughs> All right. So, and who was on the tape specifically? It doesn't sound like these are straight up Ugandan artists or anything. So it was a mix of different artists that were 
generally African artist. Um, it's a pretty Afrocentric mixtape. Um, she, uh, well, so basically, on this tape was a gold Maxell ninety minute tape. It had a label on it that just said Rasha Rowe in caps in like big pen, and basically, um, Tabu Lay Rasha Rowe, I think is who that first song we heard is by. So you have no track list specifically for the the tape. There's no there's <laughs> no track list available. All I know, all I've known since I was a kid is that it just said Rasha Rowe and. I didn't know what that meant at the time. I thought it was like a sound, a feeling. <laughs> a, I didn't know. Um, but since then, I've discovered Tabule Rashiro's music. I know a little bit about him. I know he's recorded thousands of songs, um, with um, mainly with his one band, the Afriza International Orchestra, Afriza International. Um, He's Congolese. And, He's Congolese, yes. And he was like the biggest Pan-African artist of his time, practically. Yes. He just died a few years ago. Definitely, yep. And so I think that this mixtape was inspired by this guy. And um, basically the guy who made the mixtape was a friend of my mom's. His name was Sammy Ayani. Um, I think it actually said property of Sammy Ayani <laughs> in like a little gold label at oh, the bottom so of the tape. <laughs> but... Um, so yeah, so he, so Tabule was on there as well as Mbilia Bell. She was on there. Um, she was his wife for a certain amount of time, and he popularized her as a fan, big Pan African star. Yeah, she was known as the Queen of Congolese. Um, I think that we have a song of hers. Um, so maybe we'll hear that soon. <laughs> Listening to Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and I'm here with Daniel Musisi, and we're listening to some music from an African mixtape that was floating around his family and around Philadelphia in the early 80s. Um, what was that there, Daniel? That was Mbilia Bell um, with a song called Kel Mechon Sete. Excuse my pronunciation on that, which I believe. Um, means what wickedness or something like that. Um, <laughs> I don't know what the lyrics are fully saying, so I can't see all that. But the way I found out what the name of this song was was from an app that I use all the time called Shazam, which 
you put it up to a speaker and it listens to the song and it can ID the song for you. <laughs> well, maybe our listeners can be like a listener Shazam for some of the songs. I, I know that there's some songs you don't, you aren't exactly sure exactly uh, who the artist is. And if there is a listener who wants to contact Daniel and let him know what, what songs are in this mixtape that he has been listening to all his life uh, <laughs> or any more information about them, uh, that would be great. What, what did these songs mean to you and, and your family when you were growing up? Well, for my mom specifically, it was it really just was about like comfort during homesick times. Like there were times when she was pretty much alone except for me when she, you know, in our early years here. So, you know, she would get lonely. There were really not many Africans around and people that kind of knew what she was going through and stuff. And so she would listen to this music and it would really like bring joy and comfort and happiness to her. And a lot of that was just about remembering times when she was in Uganda. And basically, I recorded a conversation I had with her just to talk to her a little bit about this mixtape. And we, one thing we talked about with her early memories of this music was being in Uganda and being at the car, the taxi lot and the bus lot, which was just a giant lot with all these taxis and buses, and that's it was like a, a hub for transportation in and out of that part of town. And there was like a, uh, a there were a bunch of shops there also, and there was a music shop that would blast um, music, and it was near where she would wait for the bus. Um, I asked her if she if she um, would dance while waiting for the bus with her friends and. This is what she had said. No, we don't do that. Like, you will never find anybody dancing on the street or on the bus. But you just listen and you enjoy it while you're listening to it. But over here, we dance to that music at the third world. And uh, we also listen to it when we had, like, African parties. We listen to that music. But at the same time, after I got the tape, if I was cleaning the house, I would play loud. And it made the house work a lot easier. And I think that's when you had it the most. You got to be a millionaire or some kind of petty bourgeoisie anytime you live in here in this country. You got to be a skullduggery. Making you money illicitly to live like somebody in this country. It's outrageous and insane. Them crazy prices in Port of Spain. And like the merchants going out their brain. And the working man like the only toiling in vain. Where you ever hear a television for seven thousand quarter million. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's Global Notes, our look at international music. We're listening to cuts from an African mixtape from Daniel Musisi's family from the early 80s in Philadelphia. That song was Capitalism Gone Mad by an artist called Mighty Sparrow. That's um, pretty vivid even today. <laughs> yes, it is. And yeah, he was known uh, as, I think, King of Calypso. Um, in, or King of... King of the world of Calypso, I think, was what his 
his known title was. And I liked your mom's uh, thoughts there about cleaning the house to music. I think everybody cleans their house to the, the music they like, and it makes things go faster and easier. It's, uh, it's a fun thing to do. Definitely. And yeah, she just got so much joy from this music. It was a pleasure to listen to it with her. Well, what did you think about it? Did um, Was it kind of like the home you don't know? It was kind of a musical exploration of uh, a place of your roots. Yeah, I mean, it was, you know, just seeing her, like, dance around and sing along to this stuff and not knowing what language a lot of this music was in. And, you know, I think that there was a moment where I didn't even know that um, – King, that Mighty Sparrow was singing <laughs> in English, <laughs> you know, like, you know, it, there was an evolution for me in listening to this stuff as well. But um, yeah, it was just, it was just an enjoyable, enjoyable time. Well, let's listen to another song. Uh, what should we hear next? Um, let's listen to another uh, Tabule Rachero song. Um, it's I'm, I believe it is. It's we can get the the listeners. This is help one on of this, the unknown so. songs. <laughs> yeah. This is another great one, actually. This is um, called Sad Movies Make Me Cry by Cynthia Schloss, which is a great example of just how, like, there was a lot of different sounds on this mixtape. This is a more of a reggae song. I don't know if it's an original or if it's a cover, but there were several reggae songs on there as well. There were a couple covers, like a cover of Bob Marley, Buffalo Soldier was on there. Ah. Um, there was a cover of Marvin Gaye's Sexual Healing on there. Did you think Marvin Gaye was African for a while? <laughs> I did. <laughs> it was like the first version of the song I knew. So, um, And then there was, you know, there was, of course, a bunch of African rumba on there and Calypso, like we heard with Mighty Sparrow. All right, so uh, let's swing back and listen to the tabula rushero that you, you don't know the name to, that, uh, the second song here. There's the one of the unknown songs on this mixtape from the early 80s uh, that was floating around in Philadelphia. 
um, grabbed by Daniel Musisi's mother and beloved by him and his mom for many years. Uh, that's a bouncy tune. That's a good one. It is, definitely, definitely. Um, so w- one of the other interesting fun facts about this mixtape is that um, in the sake of being eclectic, the last song on this tape was The Girl Is Mine, the duet with Michael Jackson and Paul McCartney. <laughs> <laughs> so while well, a lot of people here might have been listening to that song um, a lot of people from Africa will listen to all these other songs and that song. <laughs> totally. And I just feel like it must have been one of Sammy Ayani's like favorite songs at the time he was making this tape. And that it must have been like probably on the radio at the time or something. So that would have been 83, I would imagine. So I feel like that's like a pretty solid um, estimation as to when this tape was made. So Michael Jackson and Marvin Gaye were cutting across the boundaries there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, uh, Daniel Musisi, thanks for bringing us this uh, very personal and very global, global notes. Uh, Daniel Musisi is an engineer here at the station, and he uh, also works places where people DJ as DJ Moose out there uh, in the universe of DJing. Uh, thanks a lot for joining us and talking about uh, international music and giving us a little fun with uh, everybody from Cynthia Schloss to Michael Jackson here. (laughs) It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Tomorrow, we hope you'll join us at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs there at the base of the Prudential Building. We're going to be there at 5.30 talking about artificial intelligence. There will be someone there from DARPA, the Defense Department, that works on artificial intelligence matters. And also we'll be talking with an academic from Duke University who is concerned about the ethical use of artificial intelligence Uh, We all know it's coming, but we don't know what it is. It's artificial intelligence. We'll be chatting about it tomorrow. You can get tickets and more information at wbez.org slash events. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.